we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello and a very warm welcome to F1 Nation. I'm Natalie Pinkham and alongside me... Well, I'm one of them. I'm Damon. And uh, I think there's Thomas. Thomas there. Yes, I can see him. I'm in Bologna still. It's a beautiful day. I'm just not coming home. All of the COVID paperwork, I've decided, nah, I'm just going to stay here. Go straight to Portugal. You've got to get this sorted, Tom. They're leaving you. They're always leaving you behind. I mean, everything else gets crated up and sent home and you're still there. You get left behind in Bahrain. I get left behind in everything, Damon. But yeah, it's lovely to be here. And actually, annoyingly, if I didn't get on the charter with you guys last night, I've got to go via Timbuktu to get home this afternoon. But anyway, there you go. But you know what? After that race, you wouldn't mind one bit just soaking it all up. What a fantastic race it was in Imola. We thought we were treated to a thriller in Bahrain and then it stepped up up again in Italy. Did you love every minute of it? It's lights out and away we go. It is Hamilton and Verstappen. Verstappen and Hamilton wheel to wheel going into the Tamburillo chicane. Hamilton is forced wide and he's lost a little bit of bodywork as well. Verstappen leads the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix. I don't know if I've got damage. He pushed me right wide in turn one. Oh, and sliding off the road goes the Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton. Oh, and I think he might be, unless he can find reverse and he's kept the engine running, this is absolute disaster for Lewis Hamilton. So sorry, guys. Yeah, thanks for it. Max Verstappen, for the first time in his career, takes victory in Italy, and it was a victory by a long, long margin. <laughs> yes. Well, that was a tricky idea, but great job, guys. You managed that really well. <laughs> Thank you. Nice work, Lewis. That's an awesome recovery. Great battle. Back to B2. Awesome job, guys. My apologies for that mistake earlier on. But we live and learn. On to the next one. I loved it. I felt... I don't want to do it down in any way because it was really exciting, but I felt it was... It didn't have the build-up that Bahrain had. I felt with Bahrain, it was, oh, he's getting closer to Lewis. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. And this is the moment. You could sort of feel it coming. Whereas this... I didn't know which way to look for most of the race because there was just so much going on. But it was, yeah, fantastic. And the two best drivers in Formula One finished first and second, didn't they? Isn't it the point that there was so much jeopardy and tension and anything could happen and all these brilliantly talented drivers were making mistakes and tricky conditions and a tricky circuit that you know so very well. And I think that was part of what kept us right on the edge of our seats. It was. I mean, there's a fine line between uh, seeing brilliant people coping with very difficult situations and making them look rather silly because actually a lot of drivers had 
um, what would you what you describe as you know terrible moments where they fumbled? Uh, I mean, Max Verstappen, even on the restart, uh, he very nearly lost it, didn't he? He was going sideways at Ravazza, and uh, I was reminded of of a Sterling Moss who used to deliberately slide around when he was in the lead of a race to try and make people behind him feel like it was a lot slippery than it really was. I wonder whether that's what he was doing. But um, I've got a nasty feeling he actually just made a mistake, a terrible mistake. But uh, we saw Fernando Alonso as well going to the grid and dropping the ball. Um, So I think the track showed everyone up as being vulnerable. And we did see a plethora of mistakes. Isn't it a joy to be at a track that punishes mistakes? I mean, Bahrain, great racetrack, but... Imola, all of those mistakes that we saw, we wouldn't have even noticed at a track like Bahrain because of the asphalt runoff. Whereas, you know, running through gravel traps, denting front wings, it's old school. And actually Perez said after he finished uh, second in qualifying, didn't he? He said, this is a really difficult track to come to when you're joining a new team. There's so much to get your head around. And this place, mistakes are punished. You've got to run it to the edge because your teammates Max, Max Verstappen Yet you're sort of a little bit tentative. You're a bit frightened to take it right to the edge because you know what can happen. Absolutely, Tom. I think uh, you're absolutely right. And I think that in some ways we've lost a little bit of that. And I think the drivers were caught out by the difficulty of of the track. And I think you can you can extrapolate that into, you know, George Russell's reaction after finding it wasn't so easy to overtake one on a damp track down the inside into, you know, 200 miles an hour. So, but that's what it used to be like. You know, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, the track was changed after Imola of 94. We can't say this for sure, but I think if Roland and, and Ayrton could come back today, they would be horrified at some of the changes because I think they found the challenge of Formula One to be also the risk and the difficulty and, and perhaps the penalty for mistakes. And I'm sure I'm going to get people upset with that. But I think that it's too easy if you can make a mistake and then just run back onto the track again. If you can run flat into a corner and the penalty is you just lose a bit of time because you've gone on a tarmac and you can drive back on the track again, then that is not really putting the driver to the test. Every driver said to me how much they loved it there. Now, of course they have to, because you're not going to say, oh, it's a really difficult track and therefore I hate it. You want to say it's a really difficult track and that's why I love every single second of it. And the other thing is, Damon, it just emphasizes how good you have to be to win there. Isn't that right? Yeah, and that's what we're trying to find out, aren't we? And they and they were all put to the test. Well, no, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to big you up, actually. Oh, oh, sorry, right? Yes, no. <laughs> I, I mean, no. I think uh, really good, really, really good, Damon. Apparently, well, I, I missed that opportunity, didn't I? Thank you, Natalie. Um, no, I I won there twice, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, but I've also had my downs at other circuits, and uh, uh, you know, it is it, it's supposed to be tricky. It's supposed to be tough. It's supposed to be a little bit risky as well. I mean, Suzuka. You know, there is no runoff at Suzuka. And they, they, I tell you what, they don't go off a lot at Suzuka, do they? One of the absolute highlights has to be the start of the race. And there was so much emphasis put on it beforehand. Obviously, before we knew they were starting on Inters, we thought it would be Perez on those softs that would get the jump on Lewis um, from P2. But ultimately, it was Max Verstappen who had such a great start and uh, something that he told me afterwards he'd been practising. But it just set it up so well for the rest of the race, didn't it? It did also set up a little bit of a, a, 
a crisis for Lewis Hamilton, didn't it? Because I think you're right, Natalie. I think he probably expected to be threatened more by Perez on his right. But actually, it was Max who was extremely brave off the line, who actually put, it looked like, a wheel right on the very edge of the track. But he kept his foot in it and got alongside Lewis going into turn one and then forced Lewis to go around the outside. And I was watching that. And I have to say, Lewis, I was thinking, Lewis, no, 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 not there, you know. And he should have, I think he should have conceded the corner because I think it was quite clear that Max had the inside line and it was inevitable that Max was going to use all the track and Lewis had nowhere to go but over those great big uh, rumble strips those uh, sausages or um, you know the bumps that they put on the curb and damaged his front wing and that really put him on the back foot for the whole of the rest of the race. I saw it as a straight fight between Lewis and Max. I don't think Lewis was that concerned by Perez because let's not forget it was Perez's first start in a Red Bull and it was on a damp track because uh, he was at the back in in Bahrain so I think Perez probably had more than enough on his hands so I think he was looking at Max and he was already concerned because the tyre warm-up the intermediate tyre warm-up on the Red Bull was superior to that of Mercedes so I think he thought Max might get a run on him plus there's the toe of course as you're going down towards Tamburello interesting bit of needle between them after the race because as you say Damon oh he should have Perhaps Lewis should have uh, conceded the corner, but they were having a conversation about, uh, did they touch? And Max went, no, 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 we didn't touch. And then Lewis went, no, no, we did. We did. We did touch. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. And it was just, it's all been very good tempered so far, hasn't it? Between the two of them, very respectful. But it's the first time I saw a little bit of an edge between them. And let's not forget that I think they both realise that the championship is already a straight fight between the two of them. And therefore, they're going to be harder when they're racing each other than anyone else. Because at least if they're racing each other and they have a crash, they take each other out. Not going to lose any points to the other one in the championship. Whereas when you're racing Orlando Norris to try and climb back up the order, if you get taken out, uh, and Lewis actually made the point after the race about if he'd lost 25 points to Max today, it would have been very difficult to get it back because it is going to be so close. So did they touch? Did they touch? I think they did touch, didn't they? And then, of course, Lewis goes crunching over those sausage curbs. And then what did it? Max did three seconds. He opened three seconds on that opening lap as well. It's extraordinary performance. Uh, and it was extraordinary that actually Lewis, with the damaged front wing, he didn't let him get too far away. We got up to about five seconds, didn't it? And then he started to close in. And then we had the, the crucial bit of the, of the race where they were going to make the pit stop. And it was only because Lewis had a slow-ish stop that Max managed to retain the, the lead. But I mean, I think that you're right. This is what we're seeing now is just the little opening little testy moments that are going to build over the season they're scoring points little points off each other max won that one not only won the race but he won the first corner and the start and uh, and lewis came off slightly worse when he didn't come off so worse in in bahrain so it's all square isn't it i think it's zero zero but they're learning about each other and it's so true what you say tom about you know at the start of the season they were buzzing at the fact that it was such great competition you know uh, max said to me i'm in a completely different mindset because i've got a fast car for the first time in a very long time so he's buzzing off that Lewis is buzzing from the fact that actually he's got a challenge of a different kind. And, you know, this is great. This is competition for him. Um, but soon that honeymoon period's worn off and it's, and it's just head to head. The gloves will be off. And that's the bit we all want to see. It kind of reminds me of Schumacher and Alonso circa 2005. Remember, 
Schumacher at the time, already a seven-time world champion. Ferrari coming off the back of multiple world championship successes. That's the kind of Hamilton-Mercedes deal now, isn't it? And then there was Alonso, the precocious, slightly Latin temperament youngster coming in. And, and of course, Alonso got the better of Schumacher that year, despite, I think, not having the better car. So, And that masterclass he served him at Ed Imola in 2005, you know, at that very track. Of course, Pinks. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to be fantastic. And um, roll on Portugal. I can't see that being any different in terms of the closeness of it all. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Touching on some of those mistakes that were made, Alonso Leclerc, Mick Schumacher, obviously, you know, it's a steep learning curve for him, but he crashed warming up the tyres. Both Max and Kimi went off. Uh, during the red flag restart. I mean, <laughs> everywhere you looked, something was happening. I'm trying to think of a driver that didn't have a mistake. I mean, Lando Norris, he was all cut up because he'd gone over a white line. <laughs> His qualifying lap got disqualified. And he was all so upset because he'd just gone a little bit too far over the curb on the exit, one of the fastest corners on the track. And uh, that was about his only mistake I can think he made. He was one of the few drivers... You're right, he really did beat himself up about it. But if ever there was uh, an example of tomorrow is another day, it's Lando Norris's, isn't it? I mean, what a great drive from him. Big smiles down at McLaren as Lando Norris takes another podium in Formula One. A super drive from him this afternoon. That's P3, P3. Great job, mate. Well done, P3. Yeah, let's go. Awesome. <laughs> what a great weekend. I mean... He's always been a bit of a Bahrain specialist. So when he gets a good result in Bahrain three weeks ago, I came away thinking, kind of expected that. Whereas we go to Imola and he nails it again. And I was slightly taken aback to the gap to Daniel Ricciardo. Daniel Ricciardo is top draw, yet he was made to look bang on average this weekend by Lando, really. And it must have been a really difficult one for him. Do you know what, though? I'm going to come to that because I think there's plenty of examples of it Um up and down the grid, you've obviously got Sergio at Red Bull, you've got Sebastian at Aston Martin, you've got Carlos at Ferrari and Daniel, of course, at McLaren, all trying to bed in with new teams. And Damon, this is something that I find really interesting because we went a bit deeper talking about it with both Carlos and with Daniel. And they were explaining this muscle memory and the fact that, you know, you get into this new car and it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Carlos described it as driving in a different category. And and Daniel was saying, the thing is, when you get used to a car, you know where the limit is. And that takes, what, four or five races at least to sort of for it to become instinctive and second nature? No, that's correct. And, and it's just simple things like where the switches are, for example, because when you drive uh, at that level, you need to have a certain amount of stuff being taken care of automatically, so unconsciously, and you've, you've learned it because it's been familiar. And if you suddenly switch to a new team, you will find yourself going to move your hand to turn a switch and it's not there because it's not the same car, it's in a different position. And so that can throw you. 
Andreas um, Seidel said said that Norris had gone up a notch, and and I think that I saw. I was slightly anxious for Lando because Ricardo is a hot driver, and I think that he could have been destabilized by him coming in. You know, he did say at one point, in jokingly, "I'm going to end you" um, in one of our interviews uh, when he comes to McLaren. But so far, Lando has put that to one side, and not only that, he looks incredibly comfortable uh, in the car, and it's like he has grown. He has gone up a notch. He's looking confident and confidence is so important and I think we saw that throughout this weekend where drivers who were uncomfortable and lacked the confidence in the car not in themselves but in their in in the new environment let's say uh particularly Sebastian Vettel uh, against Lance Stroll Lance Stroll is comfortable in that car and still things to learn for both Ricardo and for Vettel. Daniel made the interesting point in the pen afterwards he said if I was sitting here in sixth and Lando is in 12th, that would be a real problem because I'm outperforming a car that I'm new to and actually it doesn't have the potential. But the fact that Lando's up there on the podium is actually very encouraging to me because all I need to do is work out all I need to do. But I just now need to adapt to this car, unlock my own potential with it, and then hopefully I'll be up there with him. So I thought that was, you know, a mature answer. But as you say, you only have to look elsewhere. I mean, look at Checo. He put it P2 in quali. But he seemed, I don't know about you, Damon, but he seemed a bit stressed to me. He seemed his furrowed brow and he was like, I just don't feel right in this car yet. And, you know, it goes to show the potential that he's going to have once he is at one with that car, you know, perhaps out qualifying Max Verstappen again, but certainly out racing him because he had a terrible time on Sunday after what was a magnificent Saturday. Yeah, lots of drivers had ups and downs, didn't they? I think throughout the weekend. But uh, as we said, Lando, a couple of drivers sailed serenely through it. I'd have to say Max did a great job. And, you know, even the seven times world champion made a bit of a boo-boo, didn't he? On the, you know, it was only because of the restart that he got a second chance. I'm so glad you used the word boo-boo then. <laughs> Damon, I get your point about the switches and how that could impact a race, but I don't think the switches are a problem on a quali lap, are they? In terms of when you're just going flat out for 90 seconds, I don't think there's that much to do on the wheel. You're harsh, Tom. You are harsh. I mean, you know, I can imagine a Damon, driver... what I, no, but <laughs> Damon, what I would love you to tell us is when you're on that tightrope of grip right on the edge... Just how difficult is it? How different are the cars? Because I don't think you can hide behind the buttons on a quali lap. So why are, are the established drivers? Yes, they've been driving these cars effectively for a year. So it's the gap between the established guys and the guys who are new probably will be exaggerated. But how difficult is it to drive a car absolutely on the limit for 90 seconds, given that that's what you do for a living? It's difficult because and if you only need a slight change in the environment, I mean, you'd have to say George Russell coming into Lewis's car in the Bahrain race where he was sort of familiar. I mean, he drove from a Mercedes engine car, so he got some familiarity, but he was totally unfamiliar with with the actual car itself. So the idea of jumping in a new car completely, there's procedures as well. I mean, I think one of the problems that uh, George had with the pit stop was he'd left the radio on transmit, hadn't he? I think. So they couldn't actually communicate to each other because he was still transmitting. So just simple things like that can be catastrophic. I mean, he lost a Grand Prix because of it. Damon, that's a detail thing. That's a bit like the buttons. I'm fascinated by how difficult it is to drive one of these cars on the limit and how they differ. Well, I haven't driven a current Formula One car, Tom, but I can remember my cars only had about four buttons. So it was really very easy. You know, once you've learned how to use a steering wheel, a brake and a... (laughs) 
<laughs> an accelerator. You... Can we forget about <laughs> buttons for a minute? And <laughs> just like when you went from Williams in 96 to Arrows in 97, how difficult was it to explore the limit of that new car? I think that's the key, isn't it? Exploring the limit, knowing where the limit is. Yeah. And I think it must be very distracting because they have to adjust diff settings and they have to adjust, you know, map settings and all sorts of things on the steering wheel. I find, I find that... You know, that's that's more like you're an operator rather than a racing driver. So, you know, the the racing driving thing should be with the most of these guys, they've got instinctive control of a car, but you have distractions and also then you have other things to think about. So, I mean, Michael Schumacher, they used to talk about how much spare capacity he had. You know, if he came on the radio, he had time to talk about what other things were happening. And it's the same with Fernando Alonso. You, you could tell with, with him, he'd not only ask what lap time he was doing, he'd want to know what lap time everyone was doing. You know, he was, he was able to take on board on top of doing his job, everything else he needed to do. And if you put yourself in a new environment, you're slightly distracted and that's all you need um, to make a mistake. I mean, George Russell coming in qualifying, he was, he was adjusting his diff as he was coming out of Ravazza 2 and then he drove off the track and that's in his own car. Damon, as you mentioned Rivazza, and you actually touched on it earlier, that that sideways moment that Max Verstappen had just before the rolling restart, if you'd been in Charles Leclerc's car, would you have taken the lead and gone for it? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, of course, Sergio had to give back his place. You know, he was behind the safety car. He went off at the top of Piratella and... Then he tried to get his place back and was given a 10-second penalty. And I said, my argument was, well, what about the guys in the track? They overtook him. They should have got a penalty. <laughs> but as someone else pointed out, well, he was off the track at the time. But he recovered his position. So, I, I, yeah, it would have been an interesting one, wouldn't it, actually? You know, and it's going back on, on that, Leclerc suddenly accelerates, overtakes Max. And if Max regained his position before the start, then um, he'd get a penalty. Or, but anyway, interesting one. We'll never know. But do you remember those, the old, uh, back in the, in, the, in the 80s, when they came down that, after the uh, Variante Alta, and they came down towards Ravazza 1 on the warm-up lap, and they all fell off. Do you remember that? Was it Prost? 1991, Prost and Berger, yeah. Prost and Berger, they all fell off going, they, just, they never made it to the start. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Being Alain Prost in a Ferrari when there was a massive crowd. Oh, haven't quite made the start. Oh, my God. Horror. For the uh, horror. And unsurprisingly, Alan didn't finish the season. <laughs> what it shows is it's extremely difficult to drive these cars, and especially if the temperature drops. And we had drivers saying that the safety car is going too slow. And we know we've heard that before as well. You know, it is treacherous as anything. And George Russell lost it the year before, and he's had another one. You know, he's, he's found out, he will tell you, these tyres in cold conditions are, are tricky. It's a shame though, isn't it, for Russell and for Williams because they looked great there last year. They looked good there this year. They qualified well. It looked as if they could possibly get both cars in the points. You know, it, it really was a weekend of woulda, coulda, shoulda for so many of them. But for Williams, I, I really felt for them. It's the sport, Natalie. It is sport, isn't it? I mean, there are times when it's fantastic and you sometimes feel like you can't do a thing wrong. And other days you just want the ground to open up. And, you know, Lando Norris will have his bad days. Sometime this year, there's going to be a bad weekend. You just have to be so strong emotionally to take it. And uh, that is that is the sport. That's the nature. Of, that's why we pay them a lot of money to do it. And that's why we like to watch it. And you're right, Pinks. It was 
despite the disappointment of two crash cars, it was a massive step forward for Williams this year. I mean, they were pretty good at Imola when we were there in November, but both cars in Q2, Nicholas Latifi, big step forward, seemed so confident with the car. George, what was he? George Russell, one-tenth off Q3? You really feel they're making strides. And um, yes, didn't work out this weekend, but surely points will follow at some point. Yeah, they've got quite a team in there, haven't they now? They've got uh, sort of half of Germany's technical boffins in there now, I think. Um, FX de Maison. FX de Maison. Oh, he's French, is he? he he's French, but he was at Volkswagen. Joe's Capito. Uh, they're all Volkswagen and they're all... Uh, yeah, and, well, Willy Rampf. Do you remember Willy Rampf at Sauber? He is now at Williams as well uh, as a consultant. So, yeah, they're ramping it up big time. And Jensen Button, he's a driver consultant. Yeah, so, but he wasn't there this weekend. How senior is Jensen, do you think? Is he like, you know, is, are we talking top management Jensen Button? He'd have to answer that, but um, I feel like he's he's more of a consultant. That he doesn't go to all the races, but you know he's got invaluable experience that he can impart his wisdom to these two young drivers who were, you know, I think on on a, a personal level for the drivers and for the bigger picture for Williams, he's a great asset to the team. Do you think that um, Jensen would be advising advising uh, George Russell on on how he might have avoided that accident and how to react when someone gives you the finger, slap him on the head? <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it because I thought, you know, and, and knowing both the drivers as we do, and they're both lovely guys, I, I just assumed when George got out of his car to walk over to Valtteri, he was checking he was okay because Valtteri was in his car for a long time, wasn't he? And then when he got over there, when I just saw this, the, the, obviously we couldn't hear what they were saying, but I, I gathered that, it, you know, it wasn't too pleasant. But to see the middle finger go up and a bit of a whack on the helmet, I was like, crikey, what's happening, chaps? And then I have to remind myself that, you know, um, there's an awful lot at stake and you can't expect their emotions not to be running high at that stage. Particularly after a shunt. Valtteri Bottas and George Russell out of this race. And they look like they've had a big coming together as well. Absolutely top speed there, 295 kilometers per hour. What's that, 180 odd miles per hour. What the f oh. Are you okay, Valtteri? <laughs> big one, all good. What the f was he doing? Honestly, is he a f for what? Yeah, I mean, you're pumped, aren't you? Yeah, that's the thing is you're really pumped up because you're racing anyway and then something bad happens and you kind of do lash out. If you're not careful, I mean, we've seen <laughs> James Hunt, poor bloke. I mean, he, he flattened a, a, a marshal in Canada, didn't he? The marshal just wanted to get him to a safe place, but um, James didn't want to be touched. While we're talking punch-ups, Nelson Piquet on, was it Elisio Salazar? Salazar. Yeah, at Hock and Hope. Elisio yeah, yeah. Salazar, yeah. And it was great because they were like, they were kicking each other and they both got helmets on. <laughs> And they were like, obviously no one wanted to land a, land a blow on someone's crash helmet because they break their knuckles. I did think it was interesting after that shunt that Toto Wolf said, young drivers should never lose the global perspective. And by that, I think he meant he was coming up to pass a Mercedes and George is on the Mercedes payroll and he wants to drive next year and things like that. Now, talking of spare capacity that you were talking about earlier, Damon, that cannot 
even enter your mind at 200 miles an hour when you've got a DRS run on the car in front? Doesn't matter what make it is. Um, no, I don't think. I think what Toto was suggesting is that if something goes wrong, you know, you will. You, you know, it's what you do then. Uh, is going to go out globally as well. So you 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 know you have to set an example in the sporting context. Is that what you think he meant? No, I think he meant you are. He's just taken out one of his cars effectively because he is a Mercedes. That's how I translated that. He's taken out a Mercedes and he's a Mercedes driver. Not a great move. Yeah, but actually, what he did was better for Mercedes because by bringing out the red flag, he actually helped Lewis Hamilton climb back up to P2. It was the perfect time. Perfect teammate. Well, you you're not suggesting he did it deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> but we have seen this in this. We have seen stuff like this in our sport. But I, you're, no, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm being a bit naughty, Natalie. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not inferring that you suggested that that was done deliberately. You're absolutely right. It, it, it turned out okay, didn't it? For for Toto. Well, it's had up well for Lewis, isn't it? Yeah, for Lewis, yeah. One question I've got for you, Damon, is how aware are you of who the other car is, who the other driver is? Because I thought one really interesting point that George made to me in the pen was he wouldn't have done what he did if it wasn't me. I mean, he didn't say it that explicitly, but he said it would have been different had it been someone else. Words to that effect. Are you even aware of who it is? The visibility is not great at the best of times when you've got all that water fuzz kicking up and you're going at high speeds emotions are running high would he even known it was Valtteri um I think he probably did but I can give you an example of how in a race uh you overtake people you have absolutely no idea what even what even and when it's really wet you can't even tell that there's a car there sometimes you know so you can just see a, lo- a light and uh, it could be anybody. So that's my point. Valtteri wouldn't have done it deliberately knowing it was George. In that split second, he would have thought, oh, I know what, that's George. I'm just going to dig. Valtteri would never, never do that. Never, Valtteri would never do that anyway. I mean, that's just, that's just, I don't think. What does George mean? What did Valtteri do? I genuinely don't know what, George, uh, what Valtteri did wrong. Well, he went slightly to the right, didn't he? And it forced George off onto the wet bit and then... Did he? But I mean, he he left George more than a car wet. It's a little bit like that Spa race, isn't it? Ninety uh, ninety eight, um, where Schumacher goes in the back of Coulthard because because Coulthard was on the was on the racing line, and uh, and Michael misjudged it, and then they were very very. Cr- I mean, Michael was I've never seen him so cross. You know, he went up to the garage to try and lay one on on uh, DC. I think when you when you have a frightening incident like that, it does sometimes turn into. A bit of anger and you try to find someone to blame but i think most of the drivers i spoke to about it afterwards who saw it concluded that george had some responsibility for it as well because it's not only going for a pass it was on a slightly damp track it was always going to be tight so you need everything to work perfectly but the problem was he had his drs open and if you have your drs open you haven't got enough load on the rear tires and they just they just lit up on that damp patch and uh, they collected each other so a combination of factors who, who was it? I said it was 50-50. And, you know, but Toto said it was maybe 60-40. <laughs> so someone's got 10% <laughs> of the blame. I don't know. I felt Valtteri didn't do much wrong. Um, you know, he's racing. He's not going to give the place away. And if you're a racing driver, you would just want to encourage the guy coming past you onto the damp bit of track because it's making life a little bit harder for him that's racing in my opinion and um i'm glad i don't race against you tom <laughs> let's have a kart race later in the year you're a hard man but hang on do you not see that side of the argument at all i do 
I'm teasing you. Yeah, and I want to go karting with you now. <laughs> but it, it is, is racing, isn't it? It's racing. It's racing. And, and you, you explained it beautifully when you got the DRS open on a damp track. I mean, it raises the question as to whether the DRS should have been allowed to be open given the track conditions. That's a, I hadn't thought of that, actually, because it's down to, it is within their power to, to not allow DRS. And I think maybe they'd have to consider that for next time. I'm sure George, as president, or no, uh, chairman of uh, the GPDA, will be bringing that up at the next meeting. Pinks, what was your take on it? 60-40, 50-50, 10 I can't remember where, where we all are, really. I'm so reluctant to ever apportion blame, partly because I've never driven a Formula One car, and partly because I was just so relieved that both of them were okay. I think it could have been a lot, lot worse. I thought the Halo did a great job yet again. And I'm not saying that anyone takes that for granted, but I think both of them needed to step back and actually just go, thank God no one was hurt because it was a big shunt. Pinks, you're ex- let's say you've just got home and your husband says to you, God, what, what did you make of the crash, Pinks? Which is exactly what happened, actually. Okay, and what did you say? What was your opinion? Well, as you can probably hear, I'm at home now with kids thundering around on the floor above and jumping in and out of shot. Uh, but I do creep in very late on a Sunday night, about one o'clock this morning, in fact, is when we got home. And then leery-eyed over a cup of coffee this morning, I said, I said pretty much what we've concluded, which was explain what happened. Because as you well know, when you're trying to watch a Grand Prix with two kids in the background, you can't actually concentrate at all. So he always relies on a debrief afterwards. I really think the overriding feeling for me was relief that nobody was badly hurt. And it was fantastic that the halo worked so well once again. Um, I'm not saying that anyone takes that for granted, but you have to say that um, the fact that the overriding motion was one of apportioning blame was wrong in a way. I, I know that that's you know only natural for a lot of these races, but you've got to learn from these experiences, um, particularly someone like George who's coming through the ranks and and wanting to impress uh, Mercedes and ultimately get that drive next year. But you can't help but feel that that dynamic between him and Valtteri is always going to be tense. We, of course, all agree, massive relief that no one was hurt. I don't, I don't want to come across as all callous, but I just felt it was hard racing and, and it was a racing accident, I suppose, that went wrong. Imagine the scenario, which is that George gets out of the car, goes over to see if Valtteri's okay, says, sorry, mate, it's one of those things, you know, and I think we both made a, we both got that wrong. And they carry on. I suppose nobody wants to admit guilt, do they? It's like the insurance thing. Never say sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not not in the heat of the moment anyway. I think on reflection, they will. And when the dust settles, they will. And, you know, I'm really keen to talk about this idea of... um, of learning through your mistakes and and clearly you know George was slightly at fault there but the important bit is what what does he take from it what does he learn from it how does he build on his experience and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on um on Yuki Tsunoda because he had that big crash in quali pinks 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 can I stop you there I walked the track on Saturday night and uh, I went up to the Varianta Alta and I thought oh, okay this is where Yuki had his crash. And I, and I thought of you, Pinks, because I thought, okay, I think Pinks might even have trumped me on the Yuki Sonoda fandom thing. So I, I, I then looked inside the tire wall and I thought, I wonder where they put all the debris. <laughs> you're souvenir hunting. <laughs> so here we go, DH, you're right. I looked in, in, inside in the barrier and there was a massive bit of the engine cover. 
And I know it was Yuki's because on the inside it said the AT02. So I thought, oh, Pink's would really like to put this on her wall, wouldn't she? But it was huge. And I thought, how, how do I get this back? Uh, and then I just go, oh, I can't be bothered. Can't be. So I just shoved it back down in the barrier. But there you go. So, so someone, if you're listening and you're still in Imola, go to the Varianta Alta if you want a bit of an Alpha Tauri's bodywork. Well, you are, Tom. So go back right now to get it for me. <laughs> would you like it? Would you, would you have liked that? That's <laughs> right, I would. Okay. Talking of which, back to Yuki. He had an interesting weekend, didn't he? He was very, very tough on himself. Um, and, you know, rightly so, it was really, really difficult for the team to come back from that. But he had such a storming first part of the race, making up 10 places. And then it all kind of unraveled again. What are your sort of uh, lasting thoughts on uh, on Yuki's Imola weekend, Damon? He's quite feisty, isn't he? I mean, he's, you know, and, I, and the way he kind of, uh, yeah, responds to stuff. I, I Yeah, I think he's... he's a lot of people like his character and, and his body language and stuff. Um, I think he'll be a bit annoyed. Bit of a potty mouth. Bit of a potty mouth, yeah. Where does he kind of um, come for you in terms of in, in the pecking order of uh, A for effort and uh, execution? I think promising signs. Yeah, promising signs. He's confident. I think that's a good thing. You know, if you show you're slightly anxious about being in F1 or overawed, then that's bad. And he hasn't shown any signs of that. So uh, it's too early to say otherwise. Guys, that that whole race was another missed opportunity for Alpha Tauri, wasn't it? They they were so quick in Bahrain, and then of course Pierre Gasly damages his nose on on Daniel Ricciardo, and then this weekend again Gasly in brilliant form, and then they put the full wet tire on him at the start of the race, and you know I suppose you have to roll the dice. You got to roll the dice, but but it's worth a try. He was a, he was only a what well, he was only about a lap or two out of. Um, yeah. Oh, beg your pardon. The full wet. Yes, they put a full wet on at the start. Yeah, no, but they, but they were getting messages about uh, about it raining more, and, and you know, as always, everyone gambles in these con- in the conditions. If it had started to tip down more, he would look like a hero. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, another frustrating race, wasn't it? Because they've got such a quick car, and yet nothing to show for it really. Far better to, for it to be that way, and you to be showing promise and potential, but you know, mistakes maybe in terms of strategy that you can actually learn from than to have a car that uh, isn't going to get you anywhere. Tom, you're part of the the big cheese organization at the track. And we saw, I've never seen so many big cheeses at a race meeting before uh, from the FOM, from Formula One management and the FIA, we had John Todd, they were everyone who's anybody, you know, Ross Braun was there. What was that all about? Well, the first European race of the season traditionally is where the big wigs come out, isn't it? But you're right, Damon, there was, I mean, partly there was the announcement of Miami, Miami 2022. And there was a press conference with Stefano Domenicali and a guy called Tom Garfinkel. And prior to the press conference, all I kept telling myself is don't call him Garfunkel. That, <laughs> where's Paul Simon and all this? But anyway, they so the press conference with those two guys announcing Miami in 2022 and then sat next to me in the press conference room, Greg Maffey, the boss of Liberty Media, effectively the biggest boss of Formula One. Chase Carey, who's been trying to put that deal together. He was there. Ross Braun was there. And then just elsewhere in the pit lane, John Elkin, the chairman and CEO of Ferrari. John Todd, FIA president. Thomas Uberol, the head of motorsport at Red Bull. Uh, Luca DeMeo, head of the Renault Group. Philip Scheimer, the 
head of AM. I mean, they were all there. It was quite extraordinary how many big cheeses were there. And um, do you know, it just proves that Formula, Formula One is got its mojo and it's going great guns, isn't it? It's where everyone wants to be, even in this COVID world. Miami, can we just have another quick word on that? Because how exciting is that? Miami! I always think the American market is big enough to take another race, but to have it in Miami will be thrilling. We just obviously got to get this COVID behind us before we can really kind of reach out and involve fans. I did feel, I know I'm jumping around now, but so sad walking the track to completely empty grandstands. It just wasn't the same without the Tifosi, was it? To have the Grand Prix without any fans. And then what about the national anthem? How good was that? Oh, man, that guy. What was his name? Wow, he gave it his all. Yeah. Incredible. And that gave me goosebumps, just one man singing it. Can you imagine them all? There's just something about the Italian national anthem that stirs something in me. And I'm not even... I don't think there's any Italian ancestry in our family. Picks on the subject of Miami. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic, isn't it? It's downtown. It's about... Where did I read? I think it's the same distance from South Beach that Austin is from the Circuit of the Americas. So we're sort of 15 miles from South Beach. So guys, see you at South Beach at some point over the weekend. It looks quite a cool track, doesn't it? 19 corners, just under 5Ks. You forget that Florida is a, is a motorsport mecca, isn't it, for the Ameri- in America? Because you've got Daytona, you've got Homestead, which is actually in Miami. Now you've got Formula One there as well. It's very exciting. Let's move on to my favorite bit of the show. It is Ask Damon, where you guys at home fire any question you want at the champ. And uh, I think we've got two for you this week, Damon. Are you ready? Uh, As ever. Born ready. Born ready. Come on then, let's fire away with the first one. Hi, Damon, and hi, the team. Uh, This is Vincent from France, and I have a question for you. If you would not have been a Formula One pilot, what would you have wanted to do as a profession? Okay, Vincent, you sure you're not Vincent? You should be Vincent. But anyway, Vincent from France, uh, thank you for that question. I'm going to throw this over to Tom and Natalie to see if they can guess what other career I might like to have chosen if I hadn't been a Formula One driver. I've no doubt you would be an international surfer by day and a guitarist in a rock band by night. I mean... (laughs) No better life, is there? (laughs) No better life. But Damon, it's a question of want to do... Or could do, right? That's the difference, isn't it? Well, and I think Pink's is probably right in terms of what you wanted to do. I mean, that's true. I mean, we all fantasise, don't we, about their life of leisure and uh, going surfing and playing in rock bands. But actually, I think now, as I got older, I have to say, I do admire, I, I really admire people who are able to do something really worthwhile, like doctors, for example. You know, to be able to do a job where you're saving people's lives or you know, sorting out the world's problems, I think would probably be more rewarding, satisfying. But um, I'm not bright enough for that, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't very good at Latin. (laughs) So doctoring is out. Um, So, yeah, I think I would have been gone for the surfing. Yeah. (laughs) I think this is a question that everybody thinks about, don't they? they? They find themselves doing something and it's like first choices of, of whatever, you know, so Tom, uh, is your f- you're probably doing your dream job. You are doing your dream job, aren't you, Tom? No, my dream job, Damon, would be. And actually, this is something that struck me when we went surfing on the Baja last year or year before last. We were sat on the beach, and I remember 
looking out to sea and seeing those whales breaching. And I think to be a marine biologist based on the Baja California, that is my dream job. Uh, well, I always thought I'd follow in the footsteps of my of my mum as a barrister. I'd like to be a human rights lawyer. I always think that sounds quite cool, although there's a lot of reading required in that. If I could do my dream job in telly, well, you know, obviously I already am doing it in Formula One, but I've always wanted to bring back Challenge Annika. Challenge Nat. They've got helicopters. How cool would that be? We could have Challenge Pinks, but in a Formula One context. Yes. yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Merci beaucoup, Vincent. And uh, another question for Damon, please. Hi, Damon. It's Paul from Canada. If you had to pick one, which is your favourite circuit you've raced at and why? Oh, it's Montreal, isn't it? I mean, it's easy. You know, I mean, what can you say? Canadians are so polite. I'm got to, I've got to pay them back in some way. Um, but uh, joking apart, I mean, obviously, Canada is, is a good track. It's, it doesn't look like it should be a great track because it's it's made up of not very demanding corners it appears but actually it's one of the toughest tracks a bit like Imola very easy to make a mistake on and I think it punishes mistakes uh, and that's what you really should have in this sport I think um, so and I and I do remember winning there and I've had some good races and some bad races I've crashed into the wall of champions so that's a, a good event as part from anything else so it's being in a, a track that's close to a city a vibrant city like Montreal uh, is good for our sport. We like that. And um, But actually, in terms of driving, I would say Suzuka is the one that most intimidated me when I first went there, was the most difficult one to learn, but I had some of my best races, if not my best ever race uh, in Suzuka. So I have to, I think, say Suzuka. For me, I, do you know, when you think of tracks, I always think of the ones, Nat, I don't know whether you agree, but the ones beginning with M. I love Melbourne, Monaco, Montreal. Monza. Monza. Um, spa. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Paul for that uh, good question. And anyone else who's got questions, then please send in a voice message to askdamonhill at gmail.com. All right, guys, we're almost done. Is there any other business that we haven't covered? Gentlemen, I'd love a quick word on Ferrari. It feels as if there is a real spring in the step of the Scuderia for the first time in a long time. You know, we're seeing great performance. I know we saw it last year in quali, particularly from Charles Leclerc, but you're seeing Carlos Sainz speak with real passion and conviction about their future and definite uh, performance gains made with both cars. Well, Pinks, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's consistency. We saw the occasional bit of brilliance last year, didn't we? Whereas this year, Charles Leclerc, brilliant in both quali and the race in Bahrain and again at Imola. So they've got a car that is benign and, and fast. And let's, those early laps of the Grand Prix, you had Max Verstappen doing great things out front, Lewis Hamilton second and Charles Leclerc was clinging on to their coattails. That car was good in those intermediate conditions. So lots to look forward to if you're a Ferrari fan, definitely. I'd agree with you both there, actually. Of course, Ferrari not at the sharp end right now, but certainly looking a lot better than they were last year and quite solid and good result for them, both drivers pushing each other towards the end of the race and solidly in the middle of the top 10. Um, not what you, you know, I know they won't be happy with that, but I think that it's a, it's a good start. It's a good foundation and it's certainly better than it was last year. And I tell you what, they did very well, given that the fire alarm went off in their hotel 
on Saturday night. Can you imagine that? The whole of the Ferrari team gathered in the in the lobby of their hotel. Uh, I think it was one o'clock in the morning. I quite enjoyed the bit of banter between Carlos Sainz and Daniel Ricciardo this weekend when Daniel said, Carlos is a great guy, but man, does he dress like a 60-year-old? Saying something about him looking somewhere between a golfer and a clay pigeon shooter. And uh, Damon was very quick to defend 60-year-olds at that point. I thought that was uh, completely out of order. I mean, I'm in six-year-olds dress appropriately for six-year-olds. I think what he was trying to say was Carlos, you know, a bit younger, should be wearing all that kind of stuff that doesn't fit that uh, Danny Ricardo wears. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I think Carlos gave a good answer, didn't he? He said he'd never know how to wear a jumper over his shoulders. Thank you for your time, guys. I wanted to actually draw it out a bit longer because uh, we're quarantining at the moment and therefore quite bored. So that's really our week done, isn't it, Damon? We're just sort of sitting on Zoom calls and playing in the garden. Yeah, just in time for the good weather. And just as England is coming out of lockdown, we're going back into lockdown. F1 Nation is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Don't forget to press follow on your favourite podcast app. We will be back next week with another great show after a week of lockdown. And it's going to be a great show next week because we've got nothing else to think about for the next seven days. See you all next week. Arrivederci. Ciao. Ciao.